Welcome back to the Wiser Podcast. Wiser is very excited to bring to you a special mini-series in collaboration with Ohio State University's Department of Surgery, who held its annual Women in Surgery Symposium last fall. The theme of the conference was He for She and She for She, Redefining Surgical Culture. We've condensed eight hours of their conference into these next five 25-minute episodes full of great talks and panels. This first episode features highlights of talks from our keynote speaker, Dr. Julie Freischleif, titled Her Story in the Making, followed by a summary of efforts happening here to support women under the direction of OSU's Chair of Surgery, Dr. Tim Pollack. We'll also bring to you a perspective from OSU's own Dr. Cheryl Lee, the first African-American female chair of urology in America. And last but not least, Dr. Amalia Cochran, who speaks about creating a place of belonging in surgical culture. This program was planned and directed by Dr. Sabrina Noria, an associate professor of surgery at OSU, who came from Toronto, completed a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery at OSU, and ultimately ended back at OSU where she focuses on metabolic and bariatric surgery. She has a special interest in clinical and basic science research and has become known for her work on patient-centered outcomes in obesity and bariatric surgery. She gives an introduction to the symposium theme here. You can see that for all the progress that we've made, there are obviously counterforces that we need to acknowledge, understand, and manage if we are ever going to achieve true parity, not only for women in surgery, but underrepresented minorities in surgery, non-binary in surgery, third gender identifying in surgery. We have ample evidence that outcomes are improved when the demographics of healthcare providers reflect that of their patients. So as personal identification in our society changes, so too must our understanding of what a surgeon is. It's not only good medicine, it's, it's good business. To dissuade future talent because our profession can't keep up with the times will be to our detriment. And so with that in mind, we've designed today really not only to highlight the tremendous and varied opportunities uh, a career in surgery can give you both in and out of the OR, but we also acknowledge that there are obstacles that persist, whether they are implicit biases, microaggressions, inequalities, but we hope that by the end of the day, we will give you some tools to help you manage this. So with that, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Julie Freischlag. She's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Wake Forest Baptist Health and Dean of the Wake Forest School of Medicine. For more than 15 years, she's led education and training programs at top medical schools in her role as Professor and Chair of Surgery and Vascular Surgery Departments. She served as Professor, Chair of, Sur Chair of the Surgery Department, and Surgeon-in-Chief at Johns Hopkins. She's published countless manuscripts, abstracts, book chapters, not only on her specialty of vascular surgery, but also on burnout and work-life balance. My thing was everybody thought I was a respiratory therapist. I don't know, maybe I breathe right. I don't know what it was, but they always thought I was a respiratory therapist. And, and, and not that it's bad to be a respiratory therapist, but I don't know how to do that. And what I've done at Wake and also when I was at UC Davis is I do uh, uh, videos every month uh, the ones now at Wake are 360 with Julie, which shows 360-second segments because the new generation only watches for three minutes. So if you go over three minutes, they won't watch you, right? So they know what I look like. And I did that at Davis, too, so they know what you look like. Now, in Winston-Salem, it's a small town, so every time I'm in the grocery store, they know what I look like. Uh, so they go, hi, Dr. Freischlag. I mean, it's wonderful. At the airport, hi, Dr. Freischlag. So any opportunity you have to put your face to your title, who you are. They will know what you look like. There was that article a few weeks ago in the New England Journal about the abuse that women's surgery residents take. 
And half of it is from our patients because they don't know it's that story. And especially the less educated, the more sick they are, they're gonna default to what they think looks like Marcus Welby. That's just what they're gonna do. So we need to help them. Wear your badge, tell them every single day, I'm Julie Freischlag, I'm the CEO and Dean of this school. You just don't say I'm Julie Freischlag, or you don't say I'm Julie. You tell them every single time so they know what you look like. So a mentor just loves you and wants you to sort of be like them. They take care of you, they listen to you, uh, they really help you uh, uh, figure out what you're going to do every day. But a sponsor promotes you, puts you up for things, makes it happen. And my first sponsor really was John Town. When I took a job in medical college in Wisconsin, I had just gotten divorced at UCLA. I needed to like, reboot. He put me up for things in the VA. He made sure that I had ample opportunity. So you need a sponsor that lets you puts you up for talks, opportunities, promotion, whatever it is. And then I've used coaches, especially when you can get into these leadership situations where a coach is someone that you talk to who wants you to win, okay? So a mentor wants you to feel good, a sponsor wants you to be uh, known, a coach wants you to win. And the first one I used was at Hopkins, a guy walked into my office and he said, you need a coach. When I was in high school, there were no uh, women's sports teams. Um, so I never had a coach. I said, why do I need a coach? He goes, you need a coach. He taught me how to have crucial conversations, how to fire someone, he would role play with me, and my God, those people would say exactly what he said they would say. Taught me they really have uh, conviction, because as a leader, not everyone's gonna like you. And I think that is an issue for some women, some men too, because you're gonna make decisions and not everybody's gonna be happy. And Betty Davis said, if everyone's happy, you're doing something wrong. So not everybody likes me, but I feel I make the right decisions with transparency. And if you don't feel you can make the change in the room where well, you are the only one woman or the only two, they say 30% is the number we need in order to feel comfortable in a room. So the guys are probably a little uncomfortable right now because they're under 30%. And those people of color are a little uncomfortable because you're not at 30%. But if it's 30%, all of a sudden you feel like you can strut. Uh, but as you go into these rooms, bring a folding chair. Be in the room when it happens. You've just got to be there to have that influence. I once asked Haile DeBoss, who is head of Aga Khan board, that's why I'm a trustee. He taught me how to do hernias at the VA, UCLA, because he was an international grad and they wouldn't let him practice at UCLA back then. And he ended up only being UCS chair and the chancellor, he's an amazing person. I, and when I didn't get the Denver job, I called him up because he knew that dean. I said, do you, think, do you think they're only asking me to look at these jobs because I'm a woman? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what do you do when you know they only asked you to come because you're a black man? What do you do about that? And he goes, you go, and you say something amazing. So the next time they asked you because you said something amazing. But take that folding chair and say something amazing. So we have to let new ways of teaching and training come forward and let women be individual. You're going to do it different than me. Maybe you like to cook. You just don't like to do the yard work. I don't do that either, but you don't have... But, <laughs> Maybe you do need to have an au pair or a personal person. My husband really wanted to use daycare. So whatever you do, however you manage your vacations, your activities, we need to allow, we need to have appreciation for us to be individual women in surgery and not just one size fits all. And I have seen a little bit of a queen bee syndrome where that means the women think there only can be one, there only can be um, 
my idea where some of our senior surgeons have been a little bit severe to younger women surgeons, and some of you have felt that, I'm sure. And so we need to actually open our arms to be inclusive about that as well. And what I've worked on the years is to forgive those who have not been that nice, go forward and do incredible things, and you not be that person, and that you go forward and really make people elevate them anytime you can so they can be successful too. Uh, one of my best qualities, I think, is when people meet me, they still say, well, gosh, she was really nice, and she's the CEO. Well, can't CEOs be nice? I think we can. We, we have to be hard driving and do that. But I think you can get people so much better on teams if you're approachable and that you let them know exactly where you're coming from. So thank you so much, and I really enjoy being here today. Next. Dr. Cheryl Lee, the chair of the Department of Urology at OSU, shares her perspective as a chair of a traditionally male-dominated field. She was a past president of the National Medical Association, R. Frank Jones Urological Society, and has served on the board of directors for the Society of Urologic Oncology and the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. Her professional focus is dedicated to improving the care of bladder cancer patients. As a department leader, these are some of the things that I'm thinking about. What's the vision of the culture in the department? What's the pipeline look like? Do we have that critical mass? Because it really is important, and Dr. Freischleck talked about this, you need to have a certain number of individuals to reduce tokenism and to reduce being uh, viewed as the only one, or the woman surgeon, or the black surgeon, or the black woman surgeon. You need to have a critical mass. In the old days, our vision for changing the culture in surgery was more. We need more women, we need more numbers. Now, this is data from a highly reputable source, the Medscape 2019 Physician Report. <laughs> um, but I think it's probably about right. Although many surgical specialties have now 19, 20, 25% women, urology's lagged behind, frankly. But I do remember when it was 5% and 3%. Urology surveys the field every year through an annual census. And this is the, the 2018 you know, that came out this year. And from the you know, 12,000 plus individuals that filled out the survey, it was about 9% uh, women in the field. So it's somewhere between 9, 10, 11, 12%. Um, I still think that part of advancing the culture is advancing the numbers so that we as surgeons and providers can reflect our trainees and reflect our patient population. But it's not just about the numbers because we know there are these challenges that many are still facing. And I know we're talking about micro and macro aggressions. In the old days, it was much more than macro even. 28% of women versus you know almost 3% of men had some exposure to harassment or something like that. that so it, it's disappointing that at this time, these are um, not trainees, these are folks that experience this as practitioners. There are times when we have to stop and celebrate that we are advancing our numbers. And I'm gonna bring up this one example. Uh, the women in urologic oncology, and I'm one, uh, is now a new uh, and formally recognized liaison uh, and subspecialty group of the Society of Urologic Oncology. This is a picture here of the women who gathered 
uh, last week and we're celebrating about this issue. There's about 50 women here. Um, I can tell you when I was training, there was three women and I was one of them. So we, you know, it's, it, it's not perfect, but I think we should stop and celebrate advances that we are making and that does help to change the culture. Our next guest, uh, Dr. Tim Pollack, is the Chair of Surgery at Ohio State University, where he holds the Urban Meyer and Shelley Meyer Chair for Cancer Research. He completed his residency at the University of Michigan and went on to advanced training in surgical oncology at MD Anderson. He has a special interest in hepatic, pancreatic, and biliary diseases. He's published countless number of articles, he serves on multiple editorial boards, um, and he's the deputy editor, editor of JAMA Surgery. Many times I interact with men who I'm trying to recruit. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they're like, my wife or my significant other, she'll figure it out. T tell me more about the job. Tell me more about the job, right? But then I approach women, and I've had women. I'll, I'll mention Christine Ferrone, Ferrone, who's a superstar surgical oncologist at MGH. We begged her to come here and look at a job. She would not look at a job here because her husband is an orthopedic surgeon. And she's like, my husband's not going to have an opportunity. I'm not going to come look. It's difficult um, to recruit uh, great women, so I'm very proud that we've been able to do that. Uh, we've recruited 47 new faculty members to the Department of Surgery in the three and a half years I've been here. And out of the 47 that we've recruited, half have been female. And also, I will not accept a non-diverse slate of candidates. If you bring me a slate of candidates or a bunch of white guys, I'm going to say, go back. You did not look hard enough, right? There are other great people out there. You have to be purposeful, but also you have to reach out to these people, right? Because the other thing that I've uh, found is that um, you know, men are a little bit more entitled. I, that's just my opinion. I have more often find that men come to my office and tell me what they're entitled to and how great they are and how they're getting underpaid and you know they want this and they want that. I think in general, women have been typically a little bit self-effacing. Uh, self-effacing and more muted in, um, in expressing all the great things that they have accomplished. Um, and so that can get played out because men will kind of overestimate their accomplishments sometimes. And when you're in these um, committees trying to pick leaders, you know, they can sell themselves or oversell themselves. And sometimes I think that we don't see the true uh, greatness in a number of the women. Many people don't know that the first chair, first female chair of a department of surgery in the United States was here at Ohio State. It was Olga Jonasson, first chair of an academic surgical department. And I came here and I didn't know that, to be honest with you. And then I found out. And I was like, it's kind of like, there's not even a picture of Dr. Jonasson anywhere in this place. And no one even like recognizes that. And I was like, wow, man. I mean, that, we should own that. So what we did was, first of all, we put up a couple pictures of Dr. Uh, Jonasson in the Department of Surgery with a plaque noting this milestone that indeed she was the first female chair of an academic surgical department in the United States. And then, you know, we thought it'd be very uh, wonderful to recognize Dr. Jonasson's legacy through a endowed professorship. We had a wonderful event where we celebrated uh, Dr. Jonasson's uh, life. Um, and, um, you know, uh, raised money for this professorship. There was an elderly woman in the back who spoke up and, and said, you know, 
I, I knew Dr. Jonason. I was, I was like interns with Dr. Jonason. We hadn't invited her or anything. I was like, she's like, you know, she's like, can I have the mic? And then she goes, yeah, I knew Dr. Jonason. And she spoke, and she just spoke to how transformational she was to be a woman surgeon at that time. And not even be a woman surgeon, but a woman leader. So, you know, this is extremely important and critical because having tools like this, A, to recognize the legacy of women in surgery, but not only to recognize the legacy of women's surgery, but to build the future. Because we were able to use this professorship to recruit Dr. Sin, the next generation of women leaders in surgery. Dr. Jerry Hewitt, the chief of OBGYN at OSU, who is a featured panelist in our next episode, described her experience working with Dr. Jonasson when she was a medical student. Probably the most impactful moment being around her was when I was doing my fourth year rotation in the ICU, the surgical ICU, and I watched her come from the main OR in OSU to the ICU to round, and she was very tall, um, and she had scrubs on and a white coat, and she walked from into, through the hall, down the hallway, and just stood at the door of the ICU and didn't say a word. And she was this huge presence, huge stature, and I watched slowly but surely all the male residents wrapped up their tasks and walked over and stood by her to prepare to round. Um, I just thought it was such a powerful statement to watch how she gathered the people that worked with her and uh, the respect with which they treated her that to this day I can, I, I enjoy seeing the picture of her on the slide because it made me think of her. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Amalia Cochran, who's the Vice Chair of Education and Director of Professionalism for the Department of Surgery at The Ohio State University. She's completed a surgical uh, education research fellowship. Her current research projects in education address barriers to academic surgical careers and the importance of effective mentoring in, in academic career development. Dr. Cochran is a past president of the Association of Women Surgeons and the Association for Surgical Education. So what I want to talk to you all a little bit about is that concept of belonging because I think this is so incredibly important. So I'm going to give you all four dares. So dare number one is I want you to go have a conversation with somebody who pushes your buttons a little bit. And the reason that I want you to do this is because one of the things that Brene Brown says that I think is so brilliant is people are hard to hate close up. And if you think about that, that's really true. Having a team with differences matters. You want to work with and be around people that are different from you. If you know American political history of the, particularly the 1980s and 90s fairly well, you know that Ted Kennedy, of course, is a Kennedy family member and therefore he has a very liberal imprint. Uh, Orrin Hatch, uh, quite the opposite and quite frankly, what, would you, what you would expect of a senator from the great state of Utah. One of the most important pieces of legislation that they wrote together was the CHIP. Act, the Children's Health Insurance Act, that got most children in the U.S. health care coverage. Totally different standpoint, totally different viewpoint, amazing outcome. Are you always surrounding yourself with people who look just like you do, who think just like you do, who do the same things that you do, and then figure out ways to make your network a little more diverse if it's not? Dare number two, 
Nurture some two-way relationships. I love this Eric Barker quote. Ask for help from those above you, share your Twinkies with those below you, and you shall go far, grasshopper. How many of you guys think networking feels kind of icky sometimes? It's so transactional. If you think about it more as a reciprocal thing and as, hey, I'm hanging out with my friends, it just, it just feels less icky. Well, if you've got too many reciprocal relationships going on, it may actually cause you to deteriorate in the quality of those relationships. Be selective, be thoughtful about it, because you're gonna exhaust yourself and you're actually gonna become less effective in your ability to work with others if you overdo. Think about asking people, how can I help you? And then don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it as well. Dare number three, know who you are. Vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change. I want you to think about this. If you don't really know who you are, are you able to be authentic and be vulnerable with people very easily? Probably not. The other nice thing about showing up as your authentic self, even when it's kind of messy or maybe a little scary here and there, is it empowers the people around you to show up authentically as well. It just creates an environment of psychological safety for them. Well, if you are in an environment where you feel psychologically unsafe, you go to your amygdala. I tend to describe it as the part of your brain that allows you to think a lot like a dinosaur. It's not very big, it's not very effective, it's there to save your life. When you are there just worrying about issues of survival, are you able to problem solve very effectively or learn very effectively? The neuroscience says we're not. Showing up as yourself, especially when you're in a position of leadership, creates a healthy environment for your team around you and they can work at their best level as well. It's about finding time for real conversations and getting to know one another at a human level. So why does radical candor matter? Well, it helps build stronger teams. Um, if you're not a sports fan, you may not know that that's Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs. Pop is someone who is notoriously not the easiest if somebody doesn't do something well. The other thing that Pop is really not well known for is he's a foodie and he loves good wine. When the Spurs travel, he actually sets up amazing dinners for the team. And because of the fact that he connects with them genuinely and they know that he cares about them so much, they are willing to accept when he gives really hard, really unfiltered feedback. Radical candor also matters because meaningful praise primes the brain for higher performance. So when you give positive feedback, you are helping people perform better. Radical candor also matters because it enhances your influence as a leader. The gentleman that is on my left in this photo is one of my former patients. If you wanna know the whole deal, there's a movie called Charged, the Eduardo Gar Garcia story. This was when he was giving a talk at TEDx Big Sky, and he was talking about his experience as an amputee because he sustained a high-voltage electrical injury, and I did have to amputate his arm. We incidentally discovered that he had testicular cancer. I got to have both of those really not-so-awesome conversations with him. He talked about his experience of me sitting down and talking to him about that. He was willing to listen to me because I was honest with him, but he also knew that I cared about him an awful lot. So your action item reviews is take a hard look at your core network, ask how can I help you, know who you are, and speak your truth respectfully. I'm gonna close with uh, yet another Brene Brown quote, but one that I think is so important about the concept of belonging. Belonging is being somewhere where you want to be and they want you. Fitting in is being somewhere where you want to be, but they don't care one way or another. Thank you all so much for your time and your attention and being here today. Thanks for joining us for our first episode in our mini-series on OSU's Women in Surgery Symposium. 
he for she and she for she, redefining surgical culture. Stay tuned for the release of the next four episodes, which will be jam-packed with great talks and panels on leadership, equity in surgery, career transitions, and bullying and microaggressions. Subscribe to hear the rest on Apple Podcasts or visit us at wiserpodcast.com to learn more. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at wiserpodcast, and we'll see you soon for the next episode.